I'm Fraser. And I'm JD. And welcome to the 150 Marches at the Bar. This evening... It's 10 a.m. in the morning, Fraser. Yeah, I know. I just don't want people to think we're at the bar at 10 a.m. Uh, fair enough. This evening on At The Bar, we're talking with HIV prevention activist Phil Samba. Phil works for Prepster, an organisation that aims to educate and agitate for PrEP access in England and beyond, and is project lead on PrEP for queer men of colour. Before we meet Phil, we thought we'd give you the lowdown on PrEP. PrEP stands for Pre-Exposure HIV Prophylaxis. It's a way of preventing HIV infection by taking a pill on an ongoing basis before sex and continued after sex. It's taken by someone who doesn't have HIV to prevent them from getting HIV. The PrEP pill is an antiretroviral drug, the same type of pill taken by someone who already has HIV to treat HIV. If the person taking PrEP is exposed to HIV, the PrEP drugs prevent HIV from entering their cells and from replicating. This stops HIV from establishing itself and stops the person taking PrEP from becoming infected with HIV. For PrEP to work, there needs to be high enough levels of the drug in the blood to protect against HIV. That's why taking PrEP properly is so important. Studies across the world have shown that daily oral PrEP is highly effective at preventing HIV. As more and more people globally take PrEP, we should be reassured that PrEP works. So, let's meet Phil Samba at the bar. My name is Phil Samba. I'm a health promoter, a social activist, a writer and a researcher. I work at Prepster. What is Prepster? It began in 2015 and it was, it was originally designed to educate and agitate for PrEP in England and beyond, which is still kind of the slogan. Um, it's kind of developed into something completely different. I think originally it was just about trying to get PrEP in the UK and educate people about it so that people could be aware of it. But now it's become it's become much, much bigger than that. It's about um, like overall sexual health in general. It's become about HIV prevention in general. There's so much information on, like not just PrEP, but on treatment, on condoms, on vaccinations, on um, even we launched a bunch of stuff on COVID and sex how to have sex safely during this time and we started um like a whole hub on all different things that we could do for sex workers to support small businesses for um people in in abusive relationships so we did a whole it's like become a huge body of like information but it's also about campaigning and also about uh, about community primarily a lot of my work stems around um sexual health and hiv prevention and i primarily work with queer men of color what led you into that role? Three years ago at Black Pride, so 2017 Black Pride, um, I was leaving Pride to go to Wireless Festival. I was kind of all over the place. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life or with what I wanted to do with my career. As I was leaving, I actually met Mark Thompson and Will Nutland, who are now my directors at Prepster. Um, they were giving out condoms and on the condom packs were like lots of information about PrEP. And 2017 summer in comparison to like let's say this year summer, completely different in terms of people's like knowledge or awareness of PrEP or how to access it, how it works, if it works, how to take it, all of that stuff. And I remember being pretty switched on about it and just thinking that like a lot of people don't know that it, it exists. A lot of people People don't know where to get it and people don't know how it works a lot what they can do with it and um 
I just thought that like I it started off there and it started off just being like I feel like I can get a lot of people to just know what this is and then um I they invited me to a discussion panel where they showed um um our film uh, Prep 17 which is a documentary talking about um access to prep and then from there I just felt really inspired and felt like I can use my own social media to do something I didn't think I'd get so caught up in HIV and sexual health but growing up in London um as a black queer man I grew up with a lot of straight black male friends and I also have a lot of um gay black male friends so like I kind of understood how to target for both of them and it just made me feel like I was in a quite unique position where I felt comfortable talking about sexual health or talking about things and I would be able to help people so that's that's kind of how it started what are the biggest obstacles in the work that you do I think one of the challenges when we first went into lockdown was to launch the hub. The thing about Preps also is there's only 3 of us. If we do the work of like maybe 20 people, but there's only 3 of us. So it was it was quite difficult and stressful in the beginning to try and get all this work out, but we all the 3 of us all realized how important it was, as well as adapting to the lockdown and adapting to working from home permanently. So I think it was a combination of us personally like trying to adapt to um the coronavirus and adapt to the lockdown, but also adapt to a different way of working and adapting to the different work we had to produce as well because we kind of had to reassess everything that we had planned for the year so so for some things like um personally I wanted to do more uh training and um stuff on um facilitating and running workshops and stuff which I'm still able to do as um I can do some stuff online but the plan was for me to be able to get into groups and start doing that and to better that side of my health promotion so there's certain things we just kind of had to sit down and think about how can we be innovative how can we be creative how can we be different how can we be sort of breaking the mold in what we're doing rather than producing the same information as everyone else because i think a lot of the organizations are really terrified of saying that you know people are still going to have sex there was things with like abstinence pledges and um there was a lot of shaming and there was a lot of you know you shouldn't do this and this is what you should do but i don't feel there was that same understanding that some people are going to feel lonely or want to feel connected or live by themselves and not going to be able to be by themselves for months on end without interacting with people and going to miss that connection miss that intimacy so i feel like it was about a combination of different things that were challenging but we managed to overcome them could you tell us about the trial that prep ran that helped lead to prep becoming available on the nhs The trial was to see how the government would manage distributing prep to people or how it would roll out. Although prep is now available through certain channels on the NHS, what issues came up through the trial that you still think need addressing? We've seen on the trial that it's primarily cis white gay men. They have a lot lower rates of HIV already. I'm not saying that they don't necessarily need prep, but there are a lot of queer men of color for example that may need access to prep or may not know that it exists. There's a lot of trans and non-binary people that could benefit from it. There's a lot of sex workers that could benefit from it. There's migrants and I think we need to target on those groups as they're highest at risk and the less HIV that that they get the less um it'll kind of have on the overall like numbers numbers have gone down in certain demographics but they remain the same or they haven't gone down as much in others and i think that needs to be a talking point particularly when it comes to the government because i i think what the government tends to do is just say okay you have this service and then just leave 
our organization to be the ones to reach out to communities or try to educate people. We have to then contact other um, organizations that work with different communities and share information where the government's not doing anything proactive to do any kind of advertising or to do any kind of promotion or to make anything easier for us or for the people that desperately need it. What inspires you to keep going? There are not many Black queer men in the HIV and sexual health sector. And I really care about my community and I really care about making a difference in people's lives and with different people's health. And to some extent, it's kind of like, if I don't do it, then then who will? I'd like to one day go on to achieve better things. And I, I hope to become like a doctor of public health and to produce more research and to make more systemic changes. And I think that those are the things that have drive me to, to keep going and to do the best that I can. Is there a moment that signifies for you the positive impact of your work? I get it a lot when people come up to me and tell me like that I've managed to help them to get onto prep or that I've educated them or that they're, they're able to have conversations with their friends or I don't know. I think part of my work is about improving people's health, but I think that's just the health promotion side. But like, I think part of being a social activist is trying to promote change. So not only just to change, um, you know, HIV diagnosis amongst um, certain groups, but also to provide honest, honest and accurate visibility and representation of black queer men appearing in some of the photo shoots or appearing in some of the campaigns or getting my friends and other people to being things, people can see themselves, but younger people can see themselves and believe that their health is important or their mental health is important. So a huge part of how I've managed to see it has been when people see the, the things that I've done or read think the things that I've written and then talk about the impact that it's had on, on their health and, and on their lives. What would you say to someone who is cautious about taking prep? I would say that the thing with PrEP is that because it's so new, I think as queer men, we've kind of lived in this kind of life of just thinking that HIV is this thing that kind of is always kind of in the room with us whenever we, you know, sleep with people. So it's always in the back of our minds and it's always that thing that it could happen to us sort of thing. And I think the interesting thing about PrEP is the effect that it has on your mental health and how it actually changes the way you see sex. And one thing that I find really interesting, and I like talking about this because people never think about this, is that many men that start PrEP actually instantly stop having sex, like almost instantly, because then they start to reevaluate, why am I having sex? Who am I having sex with? Do I want to have sex with this person? And then it kind of makes it easier for you to accept your, your sexuality, because I think we kind of grew up with this mentality that HIV is the thing that we're going to get for being queer. But then once you kind of come out of that, and then you don't have that risk, it really changes the sex that you have and it really improves your sex life. And the side effects are quite minimal in comparison to like, let's say the HIV medication of the, the, like the late 80s or the early 90s, which was making things worse in a lot of cases. And the side effects are typically like um, some nausea in the first couple of days as your body gets used to it. And then usually after that, it passes. If you have pre-existing kidney issues, because it's, it's a strong drug, it can have an effect on your kidneys, but you are monitored with blood tests every year. Also, you might have like a very slight reduction of bone density. So I feel like when it comes to being nervous about taking it, I think it's more about the uncertainty and not knowing how it does or how it works with people. And I think the best thing to do would be to talk to people that have taken it and talk about their experiences. Like we have a bunch of stuff on our website called uh, My Prep Story. Some people don't take prep because they don't know other people personally on it sometimes. It was just about getting the experiences of those people and it being more acceptable.
the other side effect of PrEP is that it actually has managed to bring STI rates down a little bit because it kind of forces people to test more regular. Like, for example, on the trial, well, you have to get tested every three months so that you can get your PrEP. So therefore, it's been managing to keep STI rates down to some extent. But like, those are conversations that we rarely see. Because it's made people who've never tested before or that test infrequently to test regularly and get normal to that experience. It's also about normalizing testing and removing the stigma of testing. What is it about you that makes you an activist? I think even from a child, like as a child, I've always kind of wanted to have like a lasting impact on the world, which sounds bizarre, but like I've always felt like that. I didn't know what I would do. or I didn't know how I would do it. But I've always kind of, I think it's always been natural in me. I, I'm, I know that I'm an empath and a people pleaser. So it was always sort of natural to do something sort of along these lines. But what's been good is like teaching myself boundaries and how to manage doing those things. It's important that I help people, but it's also important that I take care of myself and I don't um, overdo it or I don't stress myself out. So it's always been within me to help people. I just, I didn't ever think that I'd make an entire career out of it. I mean, it's quite dramatic to say, but I, I would, it'd be, I'd be happy if I died tomorrow knowing that I did make an impact on the world. In like maybe 10 years, like it'd be a much bigger impact, but like I still managed to do something to kind of prove that like, so I was here and I was able to help people while I did that. What do you do to take care of yourself? Um, I've been writing in a diary for about five years. I, I read that it was a really good way to manage your, your emotions and it helps you to become a better writer. But I always, I, I will put in like three things of that I'm feeling at the start. And at the end, I talk about three things that I'm grateful for, which can kind of, we can give you perspective. Um, I've been seeing my therapist since uh, 20, beginning of 2018. I saw him for a solid 11 months and now I see him kind of as and when. I don't think I need it as much as I did in the beginning. I guess self-care is really important. And I think spending time on your own and kind of not to bring up the pandemic again, but I've kind of been forced to deal with a lot of trauma. If it's in a weird way, I've spent a lot of time just being on my own as extroverted as I am, being on my own and like just kind of exploring my feelings and feeling my feelings, processing them, going back to old things that had happened, old relationships and things in my family and just kind of processing everything. So I've been spending a lot of time doing that. Um, there's also like, you know, going for walks or exercising. Um, I've been trying to meditate a lot recently. So that sort of thing. Uh, being a social activist, some of, so much of our work is like emotionally exhausting sometimes. It's also about making sure that you have fun, that it's really easy to burn out in this field. As an activist, you're also very candid about mental health issues in the queer community and your own mental health. Why do you think that's important? The similarities between mental health and sexual health are the stigmas surrounding them. So um, I think when you suggest um, someone that actually go to see a therapist, then it also it always becomes either I'm fine or I want to do this on my own. But um, I think people are terrified about what is going to happen or what the experiences are going to be. But I am extremely candid about my mental health and about therapy because I think that's the only way to get other people to, to just see it as not that big a deal. Once I posted something on my Instagram talking about my mental health and I was, I remember watching the video but, and I'd forgotten about it and I was actually surprised at how open I was being and how honest I was being. And I was talking about um, kind of being problematic with sex. I was talking about seeing my therapist. I was talking about all this stuff and I was surprised, but I was like, I think we just need a lot more of that. The other thing is that a lot of people don't realize how much it can benefit all the different areas of your life. So not just uh, maybe the family stuff or the childhood trauma and all of that or relationships, but it can make you 
see your job differently. It can make you access your job differently or try to do better at your job. It can make you improve the things you want to do, like reading or writing or all those other things that you want to do, all those things you want to improve in your life. Therapy can help you with, but I think people just see it as the therapist is going to judge me or I don't want the therapist to know my business or, you know, sort of like that. And people worry. But I think if people are less afraid, if people are more kind of switched on about what therapy actually entails, then they'd be more up for it. That's kind of like people not getting tested because they don't have symptoms or only getting tested because they have a symptom, yeah. you know, because it's very similar because it's all about the stigma. And then it's only, sometimes when you say to people, oh, I'm going to get tested, they're like, oh, what's happened or what's wrong? And it's like, why does there have to be an issue? Why can't I just get tested? Or why can't we normalize testing? why can't we normalize going to therapy or seeing a therapist or seeing someone talking about it? Why is that such a taboo? Why is it so difficult for us to just talk about problems? Like it's not, it shouldn't be like that. Sexual health is one thing. Going for a test is one thing and taking care of yourself is one thing, but taking care of your mind and taking care of like, you know, kind of unpacking the things that may have happened to you as a child or maybe affecting you in relationships, that sort of stuff is very different and very deep. And I also feel as, as queer men, we're kind of like, it was, un, it was natural for us as children and in our teens, our early teens especially, to suppress our emotions. Mm-hmm. So we're very used to that and using coping mechanisms to get through. So that's why a lot of people, they're so used to doing that. They think that this is normal, but it's not. What do you think makes a good activist? So um, I always describe myself as a social activist. And um, I think the definition for a social activist is someone that is fighting and um, advocating for um, social change. So I think that's what makes an activist. But I think what makes a really good activist is an activist that takes care of themselves as well as other people. One, one really messed up thing about activism is that sometimes it can be really selfish. Some people can then do things for their own financial or professional gain. And I think if you're an activist, activism in its definition is about affecting change and helping people. So I think if you are someone who is an activist who believes that they only want to improve the things in their life and them personally, then you're not an activist, in my opinion. What do you think makes a good ally? With allyship, I think it's about learning, first and foremost. I think one thing that uh, some allies can go wrong with is not listening and not learning. I think that's the very first thing that you have to do. You have to listen to the people that are in different situations to yours or in different groups, um, understanding what they need and rather than trying to tell them what we believe they need. You know, I think that's one of the really important things of um, allyship. If you were to bump into your teenage self, what would you say to him? I would say that like everything that you're going through is temporary. Things are, are really difficult at the moment but they will get better. You're not going to lose all your friends like you think you will. You might outgrow some of them because (laughs) you become more mature than them. I would say to give myself time to think about what I want to do with my life. There's a lot of pressure when you're in school, particularly if you're doing your GCSEs, is that you need to know exactly what your whole life plan is going to be. So I'm going to do my GCSEs and then I'm going to go to college to study this one topic. Then I'm going to go to uni and study this one topic and then I'm going to have a career in it. We don't teach children and teenagers to have life experiences and figure out what they want to do. I think it's really important for teenagers to realize that like, you can have life experiences and you don't have to have it all sorted out. There are people that achieve their dreams in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s, is what would your teenage self say back to you my teenage self would say that he was he's struggling that he's he's not talking to anyone about how he's feeling that he feels like he's the only one a black gay 
teenager going to an all boys Catholic school in East London, surrounded by black straight men, <laughs> black straight friends. I think he thinks that he's alone in this and that like people will never understand him. I think that's what it'd be like. Right, right. I think it'd be less advice and I'd just be like, okay, so what's going to change? And is my relationship with my family going to be different? Or, you know, I'm going to have a boyfriend, that sort of thing. I think that's where my teenage brain would be. Thank you so much, Phil, for coming along and chatting to us. Thank you, Phil. If you're interested in learning more about Prepster, head over to www.prepster.info. The website is full of great information that will help you make informed choices for you. So for this week at the bar, we're off for another drink. Bye. The 150 Marchers was written by Fraser Flintham and J.D. Stewart and edited by Fraser Flintham. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at 150marchers and on Instagram at 150marchers. You can find our At The Bar episodes and our journey to find the 150 Marchers on Highbury Fields on your preferred podcast listening device now.